Well, last week we, as I mentioned, began our look at this small little book of Haggai for those who were here with us and that exhortation that came to us to build God's house has been taken literally my exhortation by Theater Baptist Church and we began work at the sanctuary and just like for us back then what maybe tend to happen in situation like this is battling with uh, discouragement or finding motivation and so we come now to this second chapter of Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 to 23 in this brief story where Haggai has to encourage God's people in the work remember last time they had began to listen to the plea of of Haggai right Haggai had told them to consider the chastisement from the Lord the consequence of the chastisement was the withholding of the blessing and also the obedience that had resulted then resulted in God faithful and positive response to God's people we just to Again, keeping frame this small little book, we are just like Zechariah and Malachi in uh, the, one of the last books of the Old Testament. God's people had uh, just 10 years prior returned from exile. So we are here in just Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai. In the, after the exile, Judah is coming back from Babylon. And this first brook, uh, group of of refugees that had come back to, to, to Jerusalem to begin the restorations of the temple. But however, they had returned to a city whose walls and temple laid in ruins, eaten by termites, we could say. And the question is, how will God restore His temple? This is a, a severe testing of faith for, for God's people in this Moment. The work had begun, the temple had been dedicated, and now Haggai is giving a couple or a series of sermons to encourage God's people in the work. Ironically, verse 1 tells us in chapter 2, the circumstances of this undertaking, which is around the time where the Jewish people needed to celebrate the Feast of Booths. If you know your Old Testament history... That Feast of Booths in the Jewish calendar was a moment where Israel was remembering being homeless during the 40 years in the wilderness. And so they had to build a little booth outside of their house to remember that. And the irony here is that God is still homeless without a temple. And they are celebrating this festival. And the message in verse 1 is addressed to, and to, speak now to who? To Zerubbabel and to Joshua. As we saw, those represent the civic and religious authority of the time who led the people back to Jerusalem. But Zerubbabel seems to have in our passage all the way to the end, the spotlight. As because he needed to be assured that he will continue the, the Davidic kingdom 
all the way to the restoration through the Messiah, as we will see. However, the temple that they had undertaken to rebuild looked very small compared to the glory of the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed. And so God has to encourage the hesitancy in God's people in the work. That the temple must be renewed. And when the temple and the worship of God is renewed and restored, then what follows is a national revival, a national restoration. That after hardship, what hardship tend to do is to, they reorient us. They reorient our lives toward God. Isn't that true? And, and Israel had gone through a lots of hardship. But that those hardships reorient you toward the service of God, that is the purpose, then you experience His true favor. And so we continue in this series of consideration. Last week we saw several considerations. We now come to another consideration, which is the first one that I want to put you attend. We jump to verse 10, to all the way to verse 18. The first consideration we want to see is to consider the call to repentance. The same call that last week we saw in chapter 1 continues. That God's people are called to repent from several things. Repent from uncleanness, first of all. There in verse 10 to 13, we have a series of provocative rhetorical questions that Haggai gives to the priests. I mean, the priests are supposed to offer sacrifices, but the temple is unfinished. And the priests seem to be unbothered by the fact that this work was unfinished. So they needed to be rem remembered that while holiness cannot be communicated, defilement was being communicated in the ceremonial law. Verse 14 tells us the argument that Haggai has is from the stronger to the greater so that whatever he claims there in verse 14 is more certain than even the previous case if this is true then this is true if those last matter makes the temple unclean all the more for his more serious matters and the argument there is then verse 14 is that the people the entire nation of israel is unclean before the lord ceremonially contaminated unacceptable according to God's standard. That whatever they attempted to do was tainted by their sin, which corrupted the land, the sacrifices, whether it's selfish attitudes that we saw last Sunday evening seemed to be the case, or evil hearts, whatever it was, every work of their hands, verse 14 tells us, was defiled. Everything even in service to God, was unclean. Now, in our house, we like to have spaghetti. And my daughter likes spaghetti. However, when spaghetti comes to the table, the sauce, it's tomato sauce. And very soon, what tends to happen is that her face, her hands, her clothes, everything becomes red, right? And good luck to me afterwards having to clean her up to make sure that she goes to bed. But again, sin, selfishness, all sort of uncleanness 
was having the same result in the temple at the time that Haggai sends his prophet. It, it was staining everything they touched to the point that God says, this is no longer acceptable. When our heart is not in the work, when laziness, we saw last week, selfishness prevails, unholiness continues, that everything that we actually try to do for the Lord becomes unacceptable in His eyes until we remove that uncleanness. We don't experience His blessing, but in fact every trial becomes almost a double trial. Every sacrifice that we do for the Lord becomes Inacceptable. And as we saw this morning, God wants everything, right? He doesn't want half heart. He wants everything or nothing will be acceptable. It's a complete pleasing sacrifice. So that was the repenting from uncleanness, but also repenting from unfruitfulness. Verse 15 all the way to 18 tells us, turn to verse 15, and now consider from this day forward, Carefully consider again. We saw that word already last week. Consider your recent past. And, 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 and verse 15, from this day forward, is a, a statement that he repeats several times, Haggai. Because he's telling you that there is a sudden change that is about to take place that will turn around everything. And that change begins when God's people repent. And then we'll see later... God responds, all you did before went wrong in the past four months that are described here in our timeline. Why? God had brought a drought, fruitlessness. You see there that the measures are given to signify that all the hard work that they had placed in their regular jobs was yielding half of it. However, things are about to change. But why? Because they have begun to obey. And they have begun to rebuild the temple. The stone, the verse right there, 16 tells us, was laid upon the foundation of the, the, Lord, the temple of the Lord. And verse 17 tells us that God, as a result of their lack of repentance, had sent mild to hail. And despite all that, Israel had sadly no mind to return to God. They continued to ignore or refused to return to me. Some translation even says they were not converted to me. They did not repent, none among them. And this is not just a failure to repent in general, but a failure to actively serve God in the rebuilding of the temple. One translation has it, you brought nothing to me. Even after the dread, you would think, even after the dread of 70 years of exile in Babylon. You're now back to the promised land and you still experience this divine displeasure for 16 long years. And you still refuse to return fully to the Lord. God sent chastisement to them, but they didn't get the work to build the temple. So that in verse 18... Something in this whole picture is about to change. It's almost as if God said, consider from this day forward as saying, set this date on a calendar as a remembrance. You remember this morning that John the Apostle set the 4 p.m. appointment with Jesus Christ down on his gospel. Now there's something in verse 18 This is about to happen. 
because they obeyed to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple, they accepted the rebuke from the prophet Agai, and they acted on it, then God sends a momentous blessing when we repent of our selfishness. It was said by Ed Cole that a ton of prayer will not produce what one ounce of obedience will. One obedience, one more obedient act. It's what God is after. You can pray all you want, but until you get that act, then nothing can produce what, what that obedience does. We know that there are certain people that, you know, they stop to go to church and everything goes wrong, right? This is not accidental. We know of churches where defilement and holiness are not properly considered. And, and she, the church in North America needs to reflect on the actual status and the harsh providences that we face, as we saw last week, in relationship to God. Because they were engaged only 50% in that work. But if they obey and serve, what a change will come. God has to wake us from apathy that ca caused us our discontent and hardship. When the church lies in a, like a ruinous corpse, we must act. Yes, you can work hard at, at your business, and yet you still get your meager pay. You still have empty pockets, as we saw last week. It is because we neglect God. It, it is because we neglect obedience to God, to His work, to His kingdom, His priority. And once we reorient that, true change come. And friends, this is, this is the focus of this last part of Haggai. That there's nothing more sweet for a person to return to a God-centered lifestyle. And I have several memories that I can bring here from my personal life. But one particular, it was, there was a particular, you know, sin that I needed to repent of. That my wife brought to my attention. And... It was a costly obedience. And it was bleedy to kill that sin. But what a sweet restoration of God's presence. Anytime there is a sin in our life. And we actually trust the Lord and repent of it. God invites you to mark down that date. That that beginning of obedience is to be remembered. And my prayer list I keep a list of answered prayers and reasons to thank the Lord for the things He has done in my life that I always have to bring back to me every single day. The moment in my life when God intervened. Let me uh, list some of them to you. The first one obviously is the moment that God saved me. Then people who evangelized me when I was still lost there in Italy. Whether in Rome or Turin or even in Brazil, God has sent His people to share the gospel with me and I was still unconverted. Or remember the day where I left my hometown to go to North Italy to plant a church with a pastor and I had just a suitcase with nothing on it. And look how God provided for me. Or that day when I received a scholarship to study at the University of Milan after an entire year of job search. The, the way in which God has provided for me a wife 
in the specific details of prayer requests that I've given. The way in which he preserved us in, it was a time we, we took a hike in the, in the mountains in Italy and we were at risk and God preserved us through that. And the list goes on and on. A green card, I had to wait for an entire two years to get my green card to be able to come back to U.S. And on and on the list goes. Now I know many of those things may not mean much for you, but I'm sure you can fill the blank. I'm sure you can list, count your blessing. They encourage you to do the same. And realize all the ways in which God, and that leads us to the second point, to consider the blessings that flow from obedience. Verses 1 to 9 first, and then 19 to 23 to the end of the chapter. You, there's the, there in verses 1 through 9, there were instruction that God is giving through Haggai. Verse 1 asks this question, Who among you, who among you have seen the former glory? Who has seen the former glory of the temple? The previous generation that had gone to exile and died to exile. And now they're rebuilding the temple. And God is asking who saw the temple as it was at the time of Solomon. And how does this temple that you now are trying to rebuild compare? It's probably nothing in your eyes by comparison. And so it was. It's not as it was. It's nothing in comparison. In fact, we know from the book of Ezra. That when God's people, just around the time of Haggai, had started to, to build a temple, those who had actually seen the, the temple of Solomon before, and now they were seeing the stark indifference, they were weeping. While those who didn't see it were rejoicing that the work was going. I know that uh, in France, in 2019, there was this gigantic cathedral of Notre Dame, that had fallen to a fire, you probably saw in TV. And however, that, that, that cathedral was already under questionable restorations, under scaffolding already, and it had not been finished yet for years. They were dragging it and dragging it. And then finally, this fire takes over. And you can imagine the citizens of entire France to see Notre Dame, which was the symbol of national identity, destroyed. I mean, it was nothing by comparison. And so we go back to this case of Haggai. The assumption is that the glory of God had not re returned to, to the temple. And so without God's glory, all that work remained just an empty shell. And this was causing dissatisfaction to God's people. And it was meant to stir them to action because there were all these tensions and opposition that we know from, from the Ezra and Nehemiah that was hindering the work. We know the saying, don't we? In the good old days, if only things could go back as they were in the good old days, where you look at the state of the church in America, what is the state of the church in America today as it was in comparison to what it was centuries ago? It is left almost to nothing. And the absence of God's presence or finding a suitable house of worship led to a paralyzing of the entire religious life of the, the Jews in the Old Testament. Because the temple was the center of everything for them. And this goes for us too, that the history of this church, you know, we can look in the past with nostalgia, obviously, or 
you know, where this church used to be and how nice when we had many people, this or that. And, and, and there's the temptation. That you look at the present with pessimism, which then affects the overall morale of God's people. And friends, we got to move forward. We are called to move forward and not look back and not just sit back and wish or wait for something to happen, but obey day by day and be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, God does not immediately transform us in our Christian life into perfection, does it? We come to Jesus, oh, then we are already in heaven. No, it doesn't work that way, doesn't it? In fact, it's a very slippery slope sometimes and God continues to bear with our sinfulness, our being dragged back. He, sometimes He has to drag us forward. He's completing His work in us. And the appropriate response for us is to proactively be abounding in the work of the Lord. And realize that if God's presence is with us, then we should not be afraid. That He will do what He said He committed Himself to do. That our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so that, that is, needs to be our prayer. We need to be on our knees asking God to change the curse. To bring His presence among us. To bring a reviving in the church. And an awakening that is very much needed. And it doesn't necessarily have to be anything pretentious. Our work can be modest. Yet God promised to send His glory among us if we truly seek Him with all of our hearts. So our solution, friends, is to remain in, in the presence of God. Let us continue our text. Again, verses 1 to 9, we see there Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people. Haggai comes to them and says, Be strong. Be strong and get to work almost. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Those words, be strong and of good courage, take heart. Because they were discouraged, obviously. God is saying, I am with you. This may remind you of Moses. What Moses said to Joshua just when he was about to enter the promised land. Or David, as he's about to die and he's speaking to his son Solomon, who is to build the temple. That promise and word, our text says, which I covenanted with your fathers. When, I, when they came out of Egypt. What was the word? My spirit remains among you. Once again, like we saw last time, I will be with you always. And God is testifying that His presence will be there. Therefore, do not fear. Therefore, be not afraid. Perhaps fear remained because the people saw that the glory was not there yet and it had already left. And maybe... This was over, but no, the promise remained that He will be with us. And that same promise, friends, then as we saw last time, is further brought forward by who? By Jesus Christ, who says to His church, I am with you always till the end of the age, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And that the Holy Spirit, again, my spirit, remains among you. The same spirit that testified with our spirit that we are children of God remains with us that if we are his children he will take care of us he will not leave us and he will lead us forward this is our confidence as we embark on this building sanctuary renovation project last week 
as we seek to bring forward the kingdom of God in this portion of the land, that the witness that we give to friends and neighbors, that God will be with us through His Spirit, giving us the words to say when we don't, want, we don't know what to say, that God will build His church, even the gates of hell will not prevail, that confidence, friends, can clear up all the rubble that is right there laying on the ground of our sanctuary. The doubts that you may have in your mind about this or that material that we don't know how to find, or this or that ministry, or this or that person, or this or that circumstance. God promised not to abandon the work that He began in every child of God, but to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that work is true for every true saints of God. On the basis of this promise, we can fight. We can fight indwelling sin. We can fight and celebrate each baby steps that we take. We can depend on God to fulfill His plan. And again, look at the words of our text. In a little while, He promised, I will shake the heaven. Verse 6. This is an urgent or immediate, indefinite moment that God will appeal the natural order, bring it to convulsion. The entire creation, He's the Creator, intervening not to judge, however, like He did when He brought them to exile, but to provide for the work at hand. He shall bring showers of blessings out of heaven to earth. The change of the current state of things. He will shake the nations. So that the nations will gather and come under compulsion. Bringing with them what are the desires of all the nations. Which then refers to the treasures of the nations. I mean when, what happens when you shake a piggy ba a bank. Huh? All the coins come down. And uh, so, some children maybe know how to get that and without parents' permission. But that's what happens. But God is saying, I will bring my blessings through the nations. They will flow to Jerusalem. They will worship there all that is precious and consecrated to the service of God. The name Haggai indeed meant, as we saw last time, festival, celebration. So God promised to bring that word to completion. That the glory of this temple will exceed the expectation of the people. And not just in terms of wealth, not just in outward beauty. But God in His presence will be there in that temple. And this time He Himself shall suddenly come to His temple. In fact, Jesus Christ will carry on His ministry on that very spot of the temple that they are building. In fact, He Himself will be in the incarnate God, the true temple. His body will be the true temple. And His glory shall be revealed greater than the temple of Solomon. Remember from our text, the promise that God owns silver and gold. Everything under heaven belongs to God. He owns the cattle in a thousand hills. And therefore He is able to do this. He's able to restore the glory of the latter temple. And to make it even greater than the former temple. So that He will bring what our text says. Peace. Jerusalem. The city of peace. God will bring shalom to Jerusalem. And that same peace is brought to us. When we come by faith in Jesus Christ. When we embrace Him. We, we do experience His true lasting Peace that nothing can remove. In Christ this promise, friends, is fulfilled. 
There is greater glory in Christ than as the true temple of God. The glory of God again fills God's house. And the nations, us who are now Jewish people, in this promise are brought to experience the ultimate blessing of worship the Lord's. Watchman in one sense, when the fruit of your services out of all proportion to the gifts you possess, that is blessing. Why? Because God takes over and provides abundantly. He shakes the nations. Friends, for believers, as we saw already this morning, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And in this case, as we saw also in Sunday school, this means to the messianic millennial kingdom that ultimately this glory of the nations coming to Jerusalem and in ultimately also in Revelation 21 verses 22 and 24 in the new heaven where the temple is the Lord. The king of the earth will bring, the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. When the prince of peace will appear, the entire world order will be shaken. All the nations will flow to Jerusalem. And what an encouragement to think that even in our little place, as we contribute in a little bit in this grand scheme of things, that if we obey God, if we trust God, if we focus on serving Him, there's nothing He cannot do, no matter the obstacles, to our progress in holiness, to our progress of the kingdom of God and the furtherance of His kingdom in His church. We are called to work out, indeed, our salvation in fear and trembling, the Word of God says. So therefore, there's no excuse to despair or inactivity. Remember, He is God. He is Lord. He's sovereign. He can do it. He owns this entire planet. The nations follow His commands. And His Spirit is still within us. And it's not a spirit of fear. In fact, the Holy Spirit sustains us in our weakness. So that our courage ultimately is not something that we stirred up of our own, but it comes from God. That God is more than able to provide the material sources, the leaders, the witnesses, the necessary materials or whatever you think about building the temple of God to fill this place with true followers of Jesus Christ for His glory. He is infinitely able. All we have to do is trust Him. All we have to do is cry out to Him with all that we are. And then, verse 19, we receive our answer. We receive our desire. Look at verse 19. I gave you a context of desolate description. You have to realize that this promise of verse 19 comes in the heel of sadness, of need, of lack. Let me tell you the story of that verse for me personally. As I was, I went to North Italy to plant a church for an entire year. I had no job and I was looking for a job. I was looking, you know, it was a small church. We didn't have any money or anything. And I was, it was a hard, hard year of just searching and searching and searching and serving the Lord in the church and being obedient. And it was hard. And so here I was with my revised standard version. I was a little red copy that I had found and I was highlighting it and I came to the end of the Old Testament and then I come to Haggai, you know, just one morning drinking my coffee and, and, then, I, and then verse 19 comes and hits me. 
Why does it hit me? Because that's exactly how I felt. Barren. Empty. With nothing. Desperate for the Lord. And I says, yes, Lord, yes. You're describing my situation. And then those fresh words. God asked one last list of probing questions. Has the seed in the barn? Has the tree not yet yielded fruit for you? Otavio? You can, you can almost hear every sad Israelite says, No, Lord, you know we've been under this famine. We've seen all sort of hardship from exile, families break up, all sort of things. And now we are coming back to Jerusalem and there's opposition surrounded by ruins. Lord, you know how desperately we need you. And yet, verse 19 says, From this day forward, I Bless you. And if that wasn't enough, it comes on the heel of the undeserved blessing. Because Israel had been stubborn. But God is saying, out of my mercy, God bless. Blessings under your eyes and you can count on it. These words comes like a fresh water on a parched land that is dry. Unable to... To bear anything of its own. That's why Charles Spurgeon said once. God has a way of giving up by the cartloads. To those who give away by shovelfuls. And you receive his answer. And deliverance. That's the ending of our Haggai prophecy. Verse 20 to 23. God sends one last encouraging message to Zerubbabel. He will repeats this shaking of everything, heaven, earth, kingdom, Gentiles, and the chariots. God will overthrow royal thrones and their military power that seems so great. The nations may rage. The enemies of God's people will be found to destroy themselves at that moment, at juncture. When in verse 23, our text says, In that day, the Lord of hosts promised to Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, I will make you like a sig signet ring. A ring or a seal. Rings can be, even in our culture, a symbol of something. Conveying an engagement, conveying marriage, conveying authority or social status. And even, you know, in Italy, if you're part of a mafia, you have mafia tie, you have a specific type of ring. So there's an identification for Zerubbabel here, a close bound with the Lord, an official being tied together in honor. It's almost as God is saying, I will wear you like a ring on the finger. You will be my personal, this will be my sign of my sovereign ownership and royal authority over this descendant of David to bring forward the line of the kingship of David. And don't miss that word servant right there. It's not just servant in general. In the Hebrew Old Testament, that refers to the Messiah, the, the, the suffering servant we know from Isaiah, who rules in God's na name. And therefore, this is a significant title, which means Zerubbabel is a type for us, foreshadowing a greater king of David, rule, and a greater comrade servant that God has chosen. God has fixed the day to 
reestablish the house of David, renew the covenant with David's line, which will happen ultimately through the Messiah. And that Messiah, friends, has come, and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the heir of nations who descends from Zerubbabel. And through Christ, God will finally triumph. And it's because of this Messiah that we are accepted, and we become, we ourselves, dear to the heart of God, wearing like a ring. It is because of Him that God confirms this special and total care over us. When we serve Him. There's hope. There's hope for us friends. As we look back at the cross. We find hope. As we look forward to the coming glory that awaits us who are in Christ. There is a brighter tomorrow for those who turn to God. And now it doesn't necessarily mean an easier one. Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't necessarily mean that God promised. Yes, there will be obstacles. Yes, there will be oppositions. Yes, there will be temptations yes there will be all sort of struggles but God will be with us and that we may stand nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his goal of rebuilding the house and the and would God not shake the heavens and earth to restore the ruins of his church he's able you can be sure God's blessing rests on us when we are doing God's work that he will provide this, friends, is the antidote to your despair. When you, when you feel under temptation, under the attack of the evil one. Because, friends, when, just when you want to serve God, guess who else comes? Satan. Satan comes and tries to quench your motivation to persevere. He wants to make you think that it's pointless. Why are you serving God? That things will never be as they once were. He wants to distract you from the promise of God contained in our text today. That the, there, there's greater glory. That Satan discourages us by having us focus on our perceived inability to serve. Who am I? To match the former status of how things were. In fact, the greatest fear that Satan st- tries to instill is not even the fact of having enemies or hostilities, but to fear that God may have abandoned us. That is despair. That's the the cycle of despair. But God is with us. If you are His child, you belong to Him. You are His precious ring. And friends, the key here is that if we use God's wealth in obedience to God, not for our selfish gain, and yes, I know that you can do that with your lips. You can promise. But if you do that with your heart, with your action... You've put first God's program in His house, His worship. Then He will bless you. Either anxiety for personal benefits or avarice, all those things are gone. You get them off your mind that all your present limitations, all your present struggles and needs do not matter ultimately. God can bless those who seek Him with all their hearts. However, some of us may not be ready to handle His blessing. And that's true too. So therefore, He has to sanctify us first. Lead us through pruning and and letting us grow into patience and persevering through affliction until we are in a manageable state to hear those words. From this day on, I will bless you. Friends, let this promise rush through your like fresh water after a season of desert. Because then you'll know how the Israels felt 
when they heard this promise. I want you to know that after I had that quiet time that morning, I think it was a matter of 30 days or maybe a little bit more, I received answer from the University of Milan that they gave me a scholarship and I was able to, for three years, receive salary to study and then be able to serve in the church. I went to my pastor at the time and says, I can't believe this is happening. And, and there I was flat on the ground thanking the Lord for hours, just realizing His faithfulness. And you, I look back at the barrenness of the previous year. I look back at all the struggle that I went through. It wasn't easy. It felt like Job. It felt whatever you can, can say, but I'm telling you, God had a point in all this, creating this need until we turn to Him. And, and boy, the fellowship that you have with the Lord, even through those seasons that are hard, it's, it's nothing to be trade off. It's as precious as ever because you, 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 you are intimate with Him in your need. But again, let this promise rush you through you like fresh water. We can be in the middle of serving the Lord and however experience great barrenness, wandering, but God knows and rewards faithfulness that we are valuable before Him like a ring and ultimately only through our connection to the coming Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the suffering servant who endured the cross to make you and me one of His child, we have our comfort and promise that God has chosen us and that when you obey, when you finally get to the thick and thin of obedience, you, you, you say, I'm not going to postpone this anymore. I'm going to take a radical action here. Yes, I know I'll suffer losses. I don't know. I don't know how to provide for this or that. But I'm done. I'm tired of pretending. And guess what? Mark that date. That God noticed. But remember what Psalm 127 one says, and I repeated this to Rick many times in this past month. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. That yes, we need the Lord to help us. God provides a sacrifice at the cross, but it still wants us to be an obedient people to, to serve Him wholeheartedly. And so what do we see in this brief two-part sermon series on a little small book of a guy? You probably have skipped in your Bible. It was very small. Just didn't cross your mind. What did he teach us? And then with this I conclude. That we must set our priorities straight. That, that is the, the, the crux of the matter. And the people in Haggai's day. The problem that the people of Israel were comparing the present with the past. And they were becoming dis dissatisfied, disillusioned. They are evaluating the present experience in the church with past paradigm. However, the problem with those reflections was when it led to inaction. Therefore, God sends Haggai. And this message for me and you. That we may expand our vision. And we experience God's work in the present. Not just reflect how He worked in the past. Because God's presence is all that you need, friend. And when you finally get it, when you finally get to work with your struggle with sin, when you finally get to work for the kingdom of God, you mark the season, the day and the hour. Because God is about to move. Even when we don't see the reality in our present circumstances. But it starts in our heart. Our heart needs to be in the right place. If that's something that we have learned from this, this uh, book of Agai. 
God's goal is not just to give us a good life, friends, but that our life and our church may display His glory and grace however He sees fit. And this is not just an exhortation. Don't get me wrong. To just work hard for the Lord and if you're faithful, you will get the blessing. Right? And we saw that last week, the prosperity gospel equation. No, not so for the Jewish refugees who are surrounded by ruins under persecution and opposition, facing a famine for their disobedience. That doesn't look like that, does it? Human effort alone cannot do it. So that both in your salvation, in the way you come to Jesus Christ, and in the way you walk the Christian life, God's presence remains the focus. And the, and the challenge that we receive from this little book is, do you want to be part of God's mission? If we make the worship of God our top priority, God comes to our help. In partnership, we, He will be there, and He will be the true source of a God-sent revival. Remember, this is in Agai, the last revival before the New Testament comes. The God awakens Israel as we pray God will awake His church, Theta, but also the church in North America right now. Like more than ever, we need it. With the realization and the confidence that the, the storehouses of God are infinite. All we need to do is Open our mouth wide open and he, he will feel it. The whole world can be transformed. That may be the source of strength and courage for you tonight. You cast away your fears. That after years of expectations, you hope that God will hear your prayer. Look with you with favor, just like I was doing my quiet time years ago. Nine, eight years ago. And you hear that sweet promise from this day over. I will bless you. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for granting us, Lord, the privilege to go through this uh, small book of Agai in this past, past Sunday and tonight, Lord. And we see there your faithfulness, Lord, calling your people back, Lord, to repent of their wrong priorities, Lord. And we pray that we too, Lord, we will examine ourselves, Lord. And realize, Lord, that we have a meager take from those earthly blessings. And in fact, even if we have, we, they, are, they have a bad taste in our mouth. Unless you are everything to us. Help us to realize how needful we are for your presence. How needful we are for your work in our hearts, Lord. Sanctifying us, growing us. And even, Lord, as we contemplate uh, this practical remodeling of this uh, sanctuary that you will be with us lord that we we may bring you glory through this but that ultimately lord you will open our ears and eyes to follow your direction in all things and the lord you will be glorified in jesus name amen